This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is the 11th episode in the story of Raban Sama, and we are closing in on the conclusion. After a month-long tour of the holy sites in and around Paris, Sama had a final audience with King Philip. He meant it to be the crowning achievement in the royal treatment that he'd lavished on the Chinese ambassador. It was held in the upper chapel of Saint-Chapelle, where the just-completed stained-glass windows filled the room with light, giving the room its nickname, the Jewel Box. Being newly installed, the colors were vibrant. The windows tell a biblical history of the world. The room also held statues of the Twelve Apostles and vivid paintings that all combined to literally dazzle the eye. But it was the relics the room held that would have most impressed the Raban. Philip carefully opened an ornate box holding what was reputed to be Jesus's crown of thorns. Another reliquary held a piece of wood from the cross. While several of Paris's relics were indeed brought back from the Holy Land after the First Crusade, these two had been secured by Philip's grandfather, St. Louis, in Constantinople 40 years before. St. Chapelle was built as simply a large reliquary to hold their reliquaries. Sama's account of viewing these precious relics reports that the king told him they'd been secured during the First Crusade in Jerusalem. Either Sama misunderstood or Philip intentionally misled him. Philip wanted to encourage the Rabban in his appeal for a new crusade. It's likely that Philip fudged the facts so as to give Sama the impression that the French greatly honored the idea of a campaign to retake the Holy Land, even though he had no intention of making an imminent call for one. His behavior throughout the Rabban's visit suggests that he wanted to curry the favor of the Mongol Ilkhans. Furthering that impression was the envoy and letter that he sent with Sama when he eventually returned to Persia. Before leaving Paris, Philip loaded him with lavish gifts, which the pious and humble monk lumps under the heading lavish gifts in his account. So, armed by the assumption that he'd secured the French king's commitment to a crusade in alliance with the Mongols in Persia against the Muslim Mamluks, Sama headed west to see if he could recruit the English king, Edward I. It was fortunate that Edward just so happened to be near at hand, visiting his lands in Gascony, a region on the west coast of France just north of Spain. After a three-week journey, Sama arrived in Bordeaux. It was the fall of 1287. Whereas the Parisians had plenty of warning on the arrival of the Far Eastern ambassador from the exotic Mongols and went all out in their celebration of greeting, the people of Bordeaux, they were surprised. Who are you and where are you from, they asked. When word was brought to King Edward, he sought to make amends for the poor way that such an august figure had been greeted. Sama smoothed over the rough start to his embassy among the English by giving Edward the gifts that Ilkhan Argun had sent, as well as letters of greeting from he and the Nestorian Catholicus Mario Balaha. Edward received them with marked appreciation, but it was when Raban Sama proposed an alliance with the Mongols against the Mamluks that he became most animated. A new crusade to liberate Jerusalem and bring aid to the beleaguered Outremer? Why, that sounds stellar, was his enthusiastic reaction. Only six months earlier, Edward had vowed to take the cross. This seemed the glow of divine favor on his pledge, an affirmation of God's delight in him. While Edward intended to immediately embark on the adventure, events back home conspired to stall that plan. Wales rebelled, again, and entanglements on the continent in the fractious politics and schemes of Europe hijacked his resources and attention. But all of that was yet future, or near future to be sure, but not yet. As far as Sama was concerned, he had the support of both the kings of England and France in the proposed alliance with the Mongol Ilkhans in Persia 
in their long desire to rout the Mamluks from the Middle East. Furthering Sama's sense of favor by the English king was the invitation to officiate communion for the royal court. Though Sama consecrated and served the elements according to the ancient Syriac formula, it was enough akin to the Mass that the participants were easily able to follow along, understanding not the words, but the meaning behind each movement of the ritual. And that is simply remarkable. Think of it. Though it's the close of the 13th century, and these two branches of the church had been sundered from each other for 800 years, when adherents from the two groups engaged in the focal point of their religious service, though they couldn't understand one another's speech, they did understand what was happening, because the rite itself hadn't fundamentally changed. That's stunning by anyone's reasoning. Once the service was finished, Edward threw a feast. It was his way to finalize and seal the agreement between England and Persia. Sama didn't record what this royal feast served, but we have accounts of some of Edward's other feasts. And let me just pass along the idea that you can go right ahead and picture the most raucous dining hall scene from just about any medieval movie with an ox spinning on a spit over a huge fire, chicken bones being thrown across the room in mass quantities, platters laden high with all kinds of bread and vegetables, and keg after keg of drink. Edward was known for these kinds of food and beverage extravaganzas. And once again, having achieved his official duties as Argun's ambassador, Sama turned to his personal mission, visiting the holy sites of Edward's domains on the continent. Edward not only provided guides, he paid all of Sama's expenses for this pilgrimage. When he returned, Edward did something curious. He took pains to make sure that Sama understood that European Christians believed in Christ alone. It seems that someone may have gotten to the king and informed him of the ancient rift between the Nestorians and the Western Church. For his part, Sama wasn't going to throw over the much-needed alliance between East and West over nuances of theological wording that people who 800 years earlier had divided over, and they had spoken the same language. A lengthy dissertation on the nature of the Trinity through translators just wasn't practical, and so Sama, well, he let it go. Late in 1287, with two-thirds of his mission now accomplished, the Raban decided that it was time to head back to Rome to see if a new pope had been selected. Two of Europe's most powerful armies were now committed to the cause. All they needed was permission from Rome's bishop. By the end of that year, though, the obstinate cardinals still had not made a selection. Fleeing the cold of the French winter, he traveled to Genoa to await the election of the new pope. Sama's report of Genoa makes it clear that it was probably his favorite place in all of his travels. The city was a beauty, the people warm and friendly. As much as he loved Genoa, Sama's sense of responsibility began needling him. He wasn't, as they say, getting any younger. The trip back to Persia with his report to Argun was going to be another major epic and a life filled with them. If the last month's long journey from Persia to the West had aged him years, the return trip would now age the sexagenarian at least a decade. He couldn't return to Persia by hopping aboard a 747. It meant another rickety ship across some of the most dangerous waters of the Mediterranean to Constantinople, then across the Black Sea with its plethora of pirates to the western end of the Silk Roads, and then across Mesopotamia to Persia. And we complain when we have to hop in the car and drive to the market down the street. 
It's not difficult sympathizing with Sama's rising guilt at enjoying Genoa when he knew how eager both his friend Maryabalaha and his ruler, the Ilkhan Argun, was for his return and report. Sama was a man of profound sense of duty. What else could account for the multitude of manifest difficulties that he'd endured over the previous decade? But Genoa had everything that he'd been looking for in his pilgrimage. Well, duty won out over ease when Sama began to chafe as he waited for the cardinals in Rome to get it together. They finally did. In February of 1288, they elected Jerome of Ascoli as Pope Nicholas IV. It was an auspicious choice for Sama's mission. Some years before, Jerome had been Rome's ambassador to Constantinople to see about effecting a reconciliation between East and West. That effort proved unfruitful, but it made Jerome far more aware of the needs and sensitivities of the Eastern Church. If any European can be said to be aware of the threat that the Mamluks presented the faith, Pope Nicholas IV was among them. It helped Sama's cause that Nicholas was one of the people he'd spent considerable time conversing with when he'd been in Rome before. The two had hit it off, despite the language barrier. Nicholas sent an envoy to Genoa requesting Sama's return to the Eternal City. Two weeks later, as Sama's party reached Rome's outskirts, they were met by a delegation of church officials welcoming him to the city. Ushered into Nicholas's presence, Sama showed him the highest form of obeisance that he could by bowing on his hands and knees, kissing the Pope's hands and feet, then rising to walk backwards with arms crossed at the wrists before his chest, an Nestorian sign of the utmost honor. Sama then delivered the last of his official letters and gifts from Argun and Maryabalaha. Nicholas showed his ready acceptance of Sama's embassy and person by requesting that he stay and celebrate Easter with his Western brothers. Nicholas knew that Sama, as a Nestorian Rabban, would feel the need to officiate the events of Holy Week in some church setting. So, rather than travel, he suggested that he stay and plan on doing so there in Rome. Plush lodgings were secured for him in his attendance. Sama then began preparations for Eastern celebrations. He requested permission to conduct Mass so as to show Western Christians how what was done in the Nestorian tradition. The Pope not only granted him that permission, he showed great curiosity to witness the ritual himself. When the time came, a huge crowd was on hand. And was all and when all was said and done, the consensus was the same as in Bordeaux. While the language was different, the ritual was so similar as to make the differences inconsequential. So interesting was Sama's conduct at the Mass that the Pope invited him to officiate at more services over the next few weeks. The Rabban asked in return that the Pope would favor him by serving him the Eucharist, which Nicholas heartily assented to. The day was Palm Sunday of 1288. Sama reports that the crowds attending service that day were beyond anything that his imagination could have conjured. People literally filled the streets of Rome carrying branches of palm trees and olives. On Monday, Thursday of the next week, so many people packed the church where the Pope held Mass that when they said a united Amen, the walls shook. The service over, the Pope then made the rounds of several locations in Rome where he bestowed blessing and favor on various people and artifacts. He ended by bringing his entire household staff together and washing their feet. Sama was hugely impressed with this act of papal humility, describing it in depth. The day ended with a huge feast for some 2,000 people. Good Friday began with a procession from the Church of the Holy Cross, where the Pope held aloft a piece of the cross as the massive crowds once again attended the scene.
The rest of the day was spent in quiet meditation on the sacrifice of Christ. Saturday saw the Pope making the rounds to bestow more blessing on individual shrines and folk. Then Easter Sunday services were conducted in the ancient church of St. Maria Maggiore. Sama knew his fellow Nestorians were curious about the practices of their Western cousins, and so he paid close attention to all that was happening around him, recording the events in as intimate a detail as he could. Easter being complete and his mission now finished, Sama asked permission to return home. Nicholas asked him to stay. Sama struck for compromise. He was more than pleased to stay, especially since it came from a sincere request on the part of the Pope with whom he was getting along quite well. But he argued that a higher purpose could be served in his return to Persia, where he could share with the Mongol ruler the favorable reception that he'd been shown across Europe. Certainly, that had to be a good harbinger of a future alliance. When word got out about the success of Sama's mission, lingering tensions between East and West would subside. Such was the nature of medieval diplomacy. Then Sama made a request that threatened to, well, blow everything up. Picture that scene in a movie where two parties who are potential enemies are in fact getting along and, and everyone's on pins and needles hoping for a new day of peace. Then there's a pause and one of them says something that threatens to ruin it all. But the representative of the other side at first just stares at them with this look of, well, that's the problem. No one knows what to think. And everyone starts moving their hands slowly towards their gun because they think, oh no, this is it. Get ready to start shooting. But then the guy breaks out in a huge smile and starts laughing, and the tension is immediately released. Well, that's the scene when Sama asked the Pope for, are you ready for it? Some sacred relics. At first, Nicholas was stunned at the boldness of Sama's request. Nay, it was more than bold, it was brazen. He told the Ravon that if he were in the habit of giving relics to every foreign emissary who came to see him, there'd soon be nothing left in Rome to give. Still, in light of Sama's perilous and long journey, he was pleased to give some treasures to take home. He gave him some scraps of cloth from clothes that were said to have belonged to Jesus and Mary, as well as various relics from different saints and special vestments for Maria Balaha. Maybe the most significant gift that Nicholas bestowed was a letter patent authorizing Mar Yabalaha and his Nestorian Catholicus successors as the authorities over the Church of the East. He gave Raban Sama a letter patent naming him Visitor General for all churches of the East, not just in China, as the previous Nestorian patriarch had done. Implied in Nicholas's issuing of these letter patents was that he, as the Roman Pope, had jurisdiction over the East. You know, Sama might like to have contested that, but what point? It's not like he's going to get Nicholas to back down. For goodness sake, the question of prime ecclesiastical authority had been going on for hundreds of years. Sama was under no illusion that he was going to set things right now. Rather, all he could do was blow up the alliance that seemed to be a done deal. After Nicholas gave Sama a large gift of gold to help pay his expenses, Sama began preparations to return home. Nicholas also gave Sama a letter for Argun, thanking the Mongol ruler for his beneficent rule of Christians of his realm, and thanking him for his offer of an alliance against the Mamluks. A copy of this letter resides in the Vatican Museum. Then Nicholas launched into an appeal for both the Mongols and the Nestorians to submit to papal authority. He urged Argun to convert to Christianity post-haste and be baptized under the authority of Rome. Then he indicated that while Sama had indeed faithfully transmitted the Ilkhan's desire for an alliance, 
He and he alone could call a crusade. The secular rulers of Europe might be gung-ho, but they had no authority to approve a crusade. Only he, as the head of the church, possessed that right. And, knowing the mindset of the rest of Europe, besides the monarchs of England and France, a crusade just wasn't in the cards at that time. So he adroitly sidestepped making a commitment while at the same time encouraging the Mongols to do their best against the common enemy. Argun had indicated a willingness in his letter to the Pope to convert and be baptized if that baptism could be done in a reclaimed Jerusalem, one free of the Mamluk scourge. Nicholas said that Argun had it backward. He ought to convert and be baptized now. That would assure him of heaven's favor in any campaigns that he undertook. His example would surely lead to mass conversions, furthering the promise of divine favor. So the Pope didn't outright turn down an alliance nor forbid a crusade. He just shifted the emphasis of his letter onto the need for Argun to trust God and surrender to him, which of course would be done by accepting the Roman church's hegemony over his realm. Nicholas wasn't done with his letter writing. He penned another to Mariubalaha. This one began by praising the Nestorian Catholicus for his wise leadership of a challenged church. But then it went on to a long lecture on proper Christian doctrine, something the Nestorian patriarch wasn't at all likely to look kindly on. The last paragraph was a blatant and tactless statement of the supremacy of the Roman church. Since these letters were open, Sama read them both. He was deeply disappointed at the tone that they took with the two men that he reported to. Their condescending tone was sure to dishearten and alienate their recipients. The Pope's refusal to sanction a crusade or give any support to the proposed alliance seemed to make his entire trip west pointless. No doubt disappointed, Sama managed to tamp down any expression of it in his concluding meeting with the Pope. He was probably just glad to be quitting the West and the prospect of going home. And yes, we will be wrapping up Bar Sama's magnificent tale in our next episode. Yeah, 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 yeah.